0: Hello, robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. This is the first episode in a series we're going to be doing that, in a stroke of genius, quote from Hannah, I'm calling Remedial Uh, Read-Along. We're going to be reading the City Watch series of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, and the first of those that we will be discussing today is called Guards, Guards. Hannah, what, what would you think... Um, what do you think kind of drew both of us to these books? I mean, for me, it was it was you. but what <laughs> drew you to this series, and what made you think? because for context, Hannah's superpower, which I believe we have discussed on this show before, is that she knows exactly what series of Discworld people will like best. And for me, this was the series that she selected. Keep in mind, this was like, this prophecy occurred like three years ago. (laughs) And it has only now, only in the year of our Lord 2018, come to fruition. Uh, But she was correct. What do you think is the appeal of Discworld? Because I think that's something we're probably going to have to talk about is what is Discworld?
1: Right. So my experience with Discworld, I think, started... It's a little bit lost in the fog of my (laughs) terrible memory, but I actually started with Discworld pretty young. I think the first thing I read was probably The We Free Men, which is a YA series that's kind of set, it's a subset of The Witches arc. And then at some point I came across the only Terry Pratchett book for adults at my local Library was the Hogfather, and that book is about how it's one of the themes in, in Discworld. We're about the relationship between gods and belief, and how you have to believe in something, and that's what makes it real. And Hogfather is, of course, the Discworld Santa Claus,
0: yes, who comes on Hog's Watch night,
1: yes. And,
0: um, but I believe in Hogfather, it's one of the death books, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it's technically one of the death books. It's sort of death adjacent. It involves death's granddaughter, mm-hmm. which is sort of like a subset of the death books, just like Tiffany Aching is a subset of the... Uh,
0: of the witches books. Of the witches
1: books, yes. But to talk a little bit about Discworld, because I'm sure some people are lost already.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, sorry, guys.
0: It's okay, we'll get there. So
1: Discworld
0: is
1: four elephants on the back of a giant turtle with the disc that is the, the flat earth on their backs flying through space. And basically, it's fantasy satire land. Pretty much. <laughs> There's the main continent that we're familiar with, which has the major city Ankh-Morpork, but also Sudopolis and some vaguely egyptian society but there's also sort of a i'm putting this into such strong quotation marks but the orient like some kind of eastern like generic i think it's supposed to be a satire of how we make the east generic do you know what i mean
0: no i think that's completely true because if there's any books that take place there i haven't gotten to them but isn't that where two flower's from? Yes. And it and it's probably a completely normal region of the world, like how what we viewed as the quote unquote Orient is a completely normal part of the world. But because he they have this like generalization and like two flower is just like just weird enough that he's he's like any other tourist. Like he's just kind of there and yes. he's just being himself, and that's different enough from how they act on that continent that they're like it, it, they act like he's all mystical and crap. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good call. It's a mirror to how we, gen in the West, capital W, generalize how those areas of the world were before, like, globalization happened.
1: Right. And then there's also Australia, randomly.
0: Yeah. Isn't, is, isn't Australia just Australia? Am I remembering that correctly?
1: Pretty much. They're not even trying at that point. There are a couple of different characters, they all exist in this world together at the same time, or approximately the same time. And so you have the witches out of the Ramtops, and you have the wizards down in Ankh-Morpork who go to Unseen University, and Mm -hmm. they study magic, they less practice magic, and the witches don't really do magic it's just they're witches. And that would make sense if you read the witches books, but I don't want to spoil that, how yeah, that works for you.
0: The um the, the difference in the magic that the wizards kind of do, you're right, they are very academic. And they're like, to them, magic, much like knowledge that is peddled in universities across this this planet, is seen as a commodity. And there's only so much of it to go around. That's explored a lot in sorcery, isn't it?
1: I believe so.
0: And that a lot of the way it's set up and the way the system is set up and the levels of wizardry that you get is because there's only so much magic to go around. At least the magic they do. Now, the witches really just use reverse psychology.
1: <laughs> there's a lot of that. The The witches are more like they know a lot about medicine, herb lore, and how to deal with people and how to use psychology. I think the best thing to sum up the witches is there's a quote in one of the witches' books. And I don't know if you've got there or not yet, but it's magic is sometimes just knowing one extra thing.
0: Ooh, I haven't gotten to that part yet, but I like that.
1: Yeah, so that, that sums up the witches, is they just know more than other people, and they know how to deal with people. And they know how the world is supposed to work, and they will make it do that if it was not being cooperative. <laughs> Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the character Granny Weatherwax.
0: I love Granny Weatherwax. But in in any case, the City Watch series is about the Ankh-Morpork City Guard, which in the first book that we are reading today, Guards, Guards, is at the beginning a team of three and then four men who are all kind of especially captain vines they're all a bit cynical none of them take their jobs seriously they're not really needed like they're they're a bit of a joke right and at the start of the book there's two sort of stories that are going on at the same time there's the story of this secret society that is trying to raise a noble dragon to come and take over the city and then in theory be defeated by this hero spoiler alert this plan does not work <laughs> and carrot who is an adopted dwarf who's really six and a half feet tall is sent to ankh Pork by his adoptive father to join the watch right carrot is the epitome of lawful good in that he is completely devoted to the order of things. And he believes that even if the law inconveniences himself or others, it is still the best way to keep everybody safe.
1: Right. And part of it is because he was raised by dwarfs. And in Discworld, dwarfs can be very literal, I think. Yes, they, they, they cannot
0: do metaphors very well.
1: Yes, and I think there's the implication throughout the series, because the Elucidated Brethren, which is the uh, secret society trying to raise the dragon, is trying to raise the dragon so they can get a prince to come slay the dragon and overthrow the patrician, who, while Carrot might be lawful good, the patrician is lawful evil. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I would make a plug for neutral evil with him, but also he strays sometimes.
0: I think that's the thing with how I feel this story is a bit of a study of alignment and how it, how those alignments interact. Because I think the patrician, while he accepts the order of things insofar as it benefits himself, that's the evil part of it, he almost counts on the willingness of people to just be in it for themselves. Yeah. Which is leans as more towards the chaotic so i think i think neutral he's sort of he oscillates between the two as they benefit him most
1: right so i guess it averages out but anyway the patrician is one of my favorite characters
0: in oh, i world. loved him i loved him he was so evil and he's the kind of evil that you almost like you're i was very charmed by him throughout much of the book Not because I thought he was right, because I didn't, but because it's like, oh, I can see how you got where you are.
1: Yeah, and then, like, there are times where I don't even know that he's evil evil, and, like, Mm. he wanders into true neutral. He's a very interesting character. There's a lot of implications in the book about the patrician that he's willing to, like, have people killed because he doesn't like them, but we never see that. That's all stage.
0: That's true. That is all hearsay.
1: So... That doesn't
0: make it true or false, it just means that we don't see it on stage. It's a very Greek tragedy in that sense.
1: But anyway, the elucidated brethren want this prince to overthrow the patrician, and then they will control the prince and rule the city. So, this goes more or less about how you would expect it to go, Uh, (laughs) which is to say badly for everyone involved, because... At first, they have the dragon, quote-unquote, under control. And then they banish the dragon, they've achieved their outcome, which is they've thrown the patrician in his own dungeons. The prince has is going to be coronated. Uh, but here's the thing, they've been summoning the dragon, but what they didn't count on is the dragon's ability to find its way back from the dimension in which it is staying back to their own world on its own and it does Mm -hmm. carnage ensues at that point yeah and
0: once who is the de facto sort of leader of the secret society who he has a great quote that you mentioned in your in our production meeting about the incompetence but incompetent with potential that he sees in these people that he has recruited to carry out this this sort of mission but he ends up being like the chief executioner of the dragon's will very much against his own will is what it is implied the really cool thing about discworld i feel like as a as the books are structured because i think this is a very big style thing on terry pratchett's part you mentioned we were talking about this earlier the neil gaiman quote about terry pratchett isn't jolly he's angry
1: Right, and that definitely comes through because I think where people get confused about Terry Pratchett being very jolly is that there's jokes on jokes on jokes. But there oh, yeah. there's a righteous fury underneath of it. And there are times where he just lacerates all of human society to the very bone, to the quick. Mm-hmm. And one of them is that quote that you were talking about, and I'm gonna read a I'm gonna read that now for you all. Okay. We don't know that Wance is the Grandmaster yet. This is at the very opening of the book. The society is meeting to summon the dragon for the first time. And he says, or he's thinking, What a shower, he told himself. A bunch of incompetence no other secret society would touch with a ten-foot scepter of authority. The sort to dislocate their fingers with even the simplest secret handshake. But incompetence with possibilities, nevertheless. Let the other societies take the skilled, the hopefuls, the ambitious, the self-confident. He'd take the whining, resentful ones, the ones with a belly full of spite and bile, the ones who knew they could make it if only they'd been given the chance. Give him the ones in which the floods of venom and vindictiveness were dammed up behind thin walls of ineptitude and low-grade paranoia. And let me just say that I first read Guards, Guards in 2013, which, looking back, is, of course, what, is that the early Obama era?
0: I think that, that was his, oh, was he in his second term no, yet? Yeah, Yeah, it, was, f-
1: it would be second term. It was You're his right. second term. Which was, for me personally, a slightly more hopeful time. And now I think after the this most recent election... And sort of seeing the shift and what happened in that election, could anything be more true?
0: <laughs> no, I think that's fair. And so much of what I think makes Discworld so compelling and how it stands up to rereading is it is intensely political in differing ways. I think the the, the ongoing gender politic conversation that goes on with the wizard books and the witches books is one that stands up. And in Guards, Guards, a lot of it is the nature of power and how that shifts and what kind of people will allow the powers that be to continue on. And that's shown in a couple different ways. It's shown right there with how the kind of people once needs to summon the dragon are these people who are probably not actually oppressed and disenfranchised but they believe (laughs) they are Hmm. with a fierceness that he can then co-opt and use to his own advantage and we're going to talk about the patrician i think in a little bit who who talks about the nature of people and how there are people in the world who will follow any dragon because they're doing it mostly out of a self-interest that while we can empathize with it, is ultimately misguided in a way that can be taken advantage of.
1: Right. And I think a lot about Lagarde's books, it's about how complacency is its own, its own kind of
0: evil. hmm I would agree with that.
1: But I think it also looks at the other side of that in some ways, how hard it is and how dangerous it can be
0: to oppose evil when you find it. Mhm. And I apologize as I do every episode listeners. It's you guessed it, another Dungeons and Dragons story. That has become a very big part of our own campaign at home. Dungeons and Dragons is fun as a collaborative storytelling thing because you can start out as silly as you want and you'll still end up with these like weirdly deep questions that ev- all the characters have to kind of answer for themselves. And that's something that we're that's ongoing, especially I think with your with your player character oh yeah for those of you who don't know very briefly but hannah's character is a paladin of bahamut who you have a, an oath that is typically reserved for paladins who either do not conform to the ideals of their gods or who do not believe in them and that's been something that i know ren the character is she's very staunchly opposed To the idea of of justice that is often peddled by followers of Bahamut, which really isn't justice at all. It's just, oh, well, I'm doing it in the name of this god, therefore it must be good.
1: Right. So, yeah, my character is sort of exploring what systems do to law and justice and how difficult it can be to exist in those systems as someone who is maybe not wanted in them mm-hmm. <laughs> and doesn't conform to those ideals and what happens when that person you know is granted powers and has mm-hmm. to come face to face with her with the reality of of the situation because it's fun because in D D, the deities they exist like they can come talk to you so what do you do when you're a justice a paladin of justice who's gone astray and you and the deity comes and talks to you and says, What are you doing with your life, little girl?
0: <laughs> All people are little to the great to the great Drake, but <laughs> It's fun on my end, because I'm the dungeon master, so I get to play these gods. Cause some of them are more silent. I know our friend uh Kristen plays a cleric of Paylor, who is more of um his communication with her is more like emotional like the bringing forth like ideas and thoughts and feelings rather than actual speech bahamut just kind of shows up and <laughs> has like a beer in one hand and has like a hugh hefner robe on and is like so let's chat like, <laughs> he's, he's a very direct god which is very fun it's very fun to play but that is something i think that that also kind of goes into disc world it's not touched on as much in this book It is mentioned, I think, especially in the witches' book, there's that great quote where it's like, witches don't believe in the gods because they know they're real. You don't believe in your postman. (laughs) And it's, it's stuff like that where it, where does the power come from? Does it come from existence or does it come from belief? Yes. And I think that ties in a little bit in this book, not necessarily in the deification part of it, but part of the nature of how the dragon keeps its power is through mostly through fear but it's also because nobody wants to take the risk involved in going against it there's a moment where I think it's Nobby there's like 3 so the, so there's 3 members of the night's watch there's Captain Vimes there's Nobby Who's the other guy? I always forget his name, and I feel terrible. Colon. Colon. Thank you. And like Nabi and Colon are like trying to like raise these citizens to help them fight the dragon near the end of the book. <laughs> and it reminded me of a quote from a musical from niece, Mitchell's *Hades Town*, and it is a line Hades says after Orpheus has sort of sung his song and begged him to let Eurydice go. Every coward feels courageous in the safety of a crowd. Yes. And that can work both ways, I think. In, like, where people in any kind of situation, if you feel you're supported, you'll probably speak out. You're more apt to speak out in the safety of a crowd. But that backfires in one of, I think, the most lengthy, serious scenes in Discworld so far. The way the structure of Discworld kind of is, it is hilarious with that undercurrent of anger similarly to what we spoke about with what we do in the shadows last week that constant sort of lilting funniness makes the moments that are not played for laughs at all much more impactful and there's a it's probably like 10 to 15 pages it is after the dragon comes to power and it's clear that it is staying this time and once is now uh, sort of like the, the kind of Grand Vizier kind of situation, calls all of these leaders of the city, like the leader of the Thieves' Guild, the leader of the Assassins' Guild, these people from these great families and merchants, and they, they all come to the castle, and they have dinner. And Once kind of tells them how it is now. And they get to the point where they talk about, well, what does it eat? And they're like, well, people, obviously. <laughs> and they're talking about like, well, your families won't be considered as long as you do what we want. So the council is the kind of sitting there and they're like listening to this. They're taking everything in. Um, and this is what is written while this is all going down. They avoided each other's faces for fear of what they might see mirrored there. Each man thought one of the others is bound to say something soon some protest, and then I'll murmur agreement, not actually say anything. I'm not stupid as that, but definitely murmur something firmly so the others will be in no doubt that I thoroughly disapprove. Because at a time like this, it behooves all decent men to nearly stand up and be almost heard. No one said anything. The cowards, each man thought. And I don't know what it was. I think it was the fact that it's smack in the middle of the book. The joke has, is gone. And now they have to deal with this serious situation. And Terry's really, really good at the well-timed sucker punch. And I think that's one of them where you sort of see the evil that that lives in that room is what the patrician mentions at the very end. It's not the people who say yes to evil. It's the people who don't say no.
1: That is a thing that we are experiencing all the
0: time in our lives. Yeah. It's, It's a thing that we argue about all the time in our lives. Where it's silence is every bit a political statement as speaking out one way or the other. Yeah. And as frustrating as that can be for people who do like, there's always people that do like kind of sit in the middle of things or see both sides or what have you. Sometimes it is abstaining from a conversation doesn't mean you are not necessarily involved in it. And that is something that we're getting more and more of lately. In this current administration, of course, but um, I think globally, like with the rise of very mirroring the very fascist governments and people that were in power earlier last century.
1: Yeah, a lot of people have been concerned about what they're calling the rise of totalitarianism in the West. Mm -hmm. So I see that.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of what that boils down to and what we can see mirrored in this book and something that we actually saw in Wrinkle in Time, the need for security and how that need can outweigh anything else. Because I think a lot of why the citizens of Ankh Pork don't stand up is because they are afraid of the alternative, which is understandable.
1: <laughs> right? Because uh, in the in the scene where Nobby and Colin go out to wrangle the the populace. Uh, saying things like the citizens united will never be ignited yeah the dragon comes down and does ignite the loudest protester of the virgin eating mandate so that sort of puts a damper on that
0: yeah it's a book that it gets real deep for a while it is still very funny but i i think the most one of the most compelling parts of it that i didn't really know where it was going for a while, because I didn't know when I started it that Sam Vimes, the captain, is the main character. I didn't realize that for a second. I think it's because we start with Carrot, and we sort of get introduced to the Watch and to how the law runs in Ockmore Pork. We see that through his eyes. Yeah,
1: and a lot of Discworld novels are ensemble casts, so... Oh, absolutely. This one is probably one of the ones that's more like that, but Vimes does become the main protagonist.
0: Yeah. What I really liked about him that I actually blatantly yanked from patrick rothfuss's review of the book on goodreads is that sam vimes's whole story is the typical like a man falls from good to cynical but in reverse where we see him at the beginning he's an basically an alcoholic he has no faith in his job he has no faith in the law he has no faith in the people he has nothing like he is just collecting his job and being a cynic and sort of just being like, God, is this my life? And by the end of the book, there's a, a conversation. Terry Pratchett, thinks think, is good about having, their, having his book come down to a scene. And I think in this one, a lot of it has to do with Vimes and the Patrician at the very end. When the Patrician is now back in power, the dragon has rode off into the sunset with the smaller dragon that we followed the whole book, who ended up being the male of the species. And weirdly it reminded me of shrek with donkey and the big female right, dragon
1: because one of the characters sybil who we haven't talked about yet we haven't
0: talked about sybil yet
1: uh she raises swamp dragons which are there's dracos noblis and then there's draco vulgaris and draco noblis which is what the dragon who rules the city is they don't exist anymore that's the whole conundrum that starts off the book is how is there a dragon here they don't actually exist but it's mm-hmm. it's hard to argue with the evidence, right?
0: Right, when it's burning your face off.
1: Right. But Draco Vulgaris, which are little swamp dragons that are so messed up evolutionarily speaking. Oh my god, they are. They might explode from their own digestive processes at any time. And they don't get much higher than like two or three feet. Three feet's a lot for these swamp dragons.
0: Yeah, I saw the, the difference in dragons is like, The noble dragons are, like, massive dire wolves, and then the swamp dragons are, like, pugs. Yes. How they're technically in the same general family, but, like, evolution and breeding has totally and royally screwed up the poor little swamp dragons.
1: Right. And some people breed the swamp dragons like cat fanciers. The swamp dragons remind me most of the cat fancier
0: community. The little swamp dragon... I believe he woos and flies off with the noble dragon, who it turns out was female. And then everybody... Nobody really lives happily ever after. People rarely do in Discworld novels. Things return to normal. Things return to normal. And Vimes is, is in essence, debriefed by the patrician, who has returned... He has regained his seat. They're discussing sort of the City Watch's position in that and if it's going to change... The patrician goes into this whole monologue that's really good. It's a really good sort of in-the-middle-villain monologue where he, they talk about if people are good and evil, and Vimes, I don't remember exactly what he says, but the patrician's response is, basically, there's only bad people. They're just on opposite sides. (laughs) And Vimes tries to kind of argue with him, and he's like, well, there's got to be some good in the world. And the patrician... Again, I do not have the exact quote in front of me, but it is something like, well, I'm sure you'd have to believe that or you'd go insane.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much it. And then Vimes asks him, then how do you get out of bed in the morning if you believe that? And the patrician is like, get out of here. Just go. Yeah, (laughs) That's such a good wrap up for the book. Uh, Whether you believe, believe that or not. And I think I'm with Vimes. I don't really believe that. It's tempting sometimes, but I don't
0: really. What I've come to think about capital G good is that it ultimately prioritizes the benefit of all up to and even when it inconveniences yourself, which is a very difficult thing to do and to do it consistently. We talked about this a little bit way back when we did Last Jedi and how Kylo Ren can never really be good because he... Is incapable of continuously making that choice, and it is a choice because I think what we see in Vimes is nobody is quote unquote inherently good. It's something you learn, and it's something you do. The one particular line I do want to talk about that the Patrician says it reminded me very much of Judge Frollo from like Hunchback, where he's like essentially giving this lecture, like explaining the nature of humanity to Vimes, who is just not really buying it. Like he sees where he's coming from, but he's not buying it. Down there, he said, are people who will follow any dragon, worship any god, ignore any inequity, all out of a humdrum everyday badness. Not the really high, creative loathsomeness of the great sinners, but a sort of mass-produced darkness of the soul. Sin, you might say, without a trace of originality. They accept evil, not because they say yes, but because they don't say no. And I think if we take that as badness, goodness is the saying no, regardless of the consequence.
1: I feel like that comes up in a Steinbeck novel.
0: It sounds like something that would, honestly. <laughs> I don't mean that in a positive or negative way. It just sounds like something I'm pretty that would sure up.
1: that's in, like, the most famous Steinbeck novel whose title escapes me. There's another character in there. That, like, says if, if a man can say yes, then he can also say no. And it's about, like, free will and stuff.
0: It's not East of Eden, is it? It's probably East of Eden. That sounds like something that would have been in East of Eden. <laughs> but yeah, it is sort of that same thing of everyone having the capability to be good is there in everybody. It is a willingness to act on it. In his journey from the beginning to the end of the book, we see that Vime's has that capability, and either in an effort, I think the visual metaphor that Patrician uses is is like this thin bridge that runs over this rolling ocean of evil in the world, and like you're clinging to it for dear life. Yeah. And it's him being like, well, no one else is going to do it, so we may as well do it, which is something that's very meaningful to me. Personally, just because I, I I find characters like that very compelling. Characters who don't necessarily do things because they consider themselves good. It's that they don't depend on anyone else to do it. It's like it's got to be somebody's problem. Yeah, and if that means it's got to be mine, then it's got to be mine.
1: Yeah, I do like that, both in characters and in people. One of my favorite scenes in the book that I just want to talk about not because it relates to the good and evil question, but because it's so funny is there's a big lampooning scene of the scene in The Hobbit where they shoot the dragon. Yes. And they're like, you need a million and one chance in order yes, to be yes, successful. Yes, yes, yes,
0: I wanted to talk about that.
1: They're so hyper-focused on getting the probability to exactly a million and one because it's the only way it will succeed. <laughs> and it's so funny because they they're talking about colon used to be a really good shot with a long bow. And carrot tells them that dragons have a vulnerable spot, and if you hit it, you can kill them. So they they attempt to do that, but they decide that they need exactly a million to one chance. And so they try to do different things. Like well, I don't remember what they do, but they like try to get colon to stand on his head.
0: Yeah, colon keeps being like. Do you see that building? Now, do you see that weather vane? Now, do you see the eye of that weather vane? That's what I'm going to hit. And I'm just like, you can't, you don't got to be like that. But it is very much lampooning that fantasy trope because, I mean, Tolkien, I think, immortalized it, but it is a trope that I think the exact quote that they use in the book that Colin says is like... What kind of world do we live in if one million and if a million and one chances don't work? You might as well just not be alive. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, anyway, it doesn't work. It, no, <laughs> absolutely not. It doesn't work. It's a million to one shot. Uh, and then the the dragon blows up their building, but they do survive, which
0: that, is a yes. million to one chance. That's the one. That's the million and one chance that works in their favor is them surviving.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> We haven't talked about Sybil yet.
0: Yes, we need to talk about Sybil because I really, really like Sybil. Yes.
1: (laughs) Uh, Sybil ends up being the uh, romantic interest for Vimes. Only my favorite thing about it is it's one of those where neither of them really understands what's happening.
0: Oh, God, no, they don't. It's painful.
1: Yeah. Like, it's funny for us. But also secondhand embarrassment abounds in these sequences. Sybil is a wonderful character who is a very large woman. Pratchett does a wonderful job of never making it an issue. In fact, she's basically described as she's majestic because of of her size. And everyone sort of like elbows each other about this. She's large and people are intimidated by her. And, like, also, she's not, like, the tiny, petite society lady that we would expect. But she's also, like, very regal, and she knows what she's doing, and she's got the voice of command that comes from generations of breeding and expecting people to listen to you. And ultimately, like, she uses her powers for good. She knows that she has these powers, and she uses them in order to bolster people, to support people, And to do good and all she really wants to do well at the opening of the book is breed her little swamp dragons and take care of them, and that's good enough for her. She doesn't need a man, she doesn't get soppy. Uh she's just gonna do what she's gonna do. And Vime sort of comes rolling in because he needs information about dragons, and it's the most awkward and unintentional courtship I think I've ever seen in a novel.
0: Me too. I remember I think my favorite part of it is when Vimes is leaving. I think for the second to last time cuz the last time we see them they like hold hands or some shit and I like exploded. Um but <laughs> um Vimes is leaving and he keeps telling himself I'm not going to look back. I'm not going to look back because she's going to be there and he's like halfway through a thought and he hears the door slam behind him cuz she's just like bye. <laughs> This ain't North and South, bitch. Like, go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sybil's very practical and unsentimental. But in the end, uh, she and Vimes get together. And it's good for everyone. Well, everyone's snickering the whole time. All the characters and the reader. Just lots of snickering.
0: <laughs> yes. But I like Sybil. She's large and in charge. Like, and that is something um, we've to, we've touched on this before. Terry Pratchett is very, very good at writing female characters who are varied and who are strong in their own ways, but they're allowed to be not so good, too. Like, you know, real people. I keep joking with you, Hannah, that, like, my opener to my own series of mini episodes is going to be like, let's talk about how Shakespeare is endured because he treats pe- women like people. Ha <laughs> But it is a similar deal with Terry Pratchett's books. We're like, I, you, she's she's so solid, like she's so real, and that's not something that we get in everything. I'm reading a comic right now. Um, I'm actually kind of glad I'm reading it, and then watching the television show adaptation. I'm reading, uh, uh, Jessica Jones Alias, which I believe is the run of the comics. The TV show Jessica Jones is based on, and preface this is not to say that this comic is bad because it isn't but you can tell it was written by a man <laughs> do you ever get that vibe from like when you read like not even just the really bad ones the men who just apparently do not understand how women work at all and have no interest in understanding them like at least this guy seems to make an effort but you can tell like a lot of like the situation she gets put in her reactions to things. You're like, did a guy write this?
1: I felt like that a lot with Watchmen. I mean, you know that a guy wrote it, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, you're like,
0: "Mm." (laughs) hmm. Yeah, because I, I think the difference for me, to use Jessica Jones as an example, Jessica Jones, the TV show, focuses, like, yes, the main villain is an abusive man from Jessica's past, but her most immediate allies and friends are all women and even though like the villainy takes place on behalf of a male in her life that is ends up being her fight against that defining her is a huge part of the show and that's something that like women have to fight to do every day not just people who are abused but obviously that's a big issue and in Jessica Jones Alias it's like Jessica is not a main character in her own life she's just a participant to be in these stories of these men. And that's not completely unlike how real life feels sometimes. But I'm also like, her name's on the front of the book. <laughs> like, I don't care about this stuff. I don't care about Captain America. I don't care about this Rick Jones guy who was apparently crazy and like all this other sort of stuff. Like, I care about Jessica Jones. And I think sometimes there can be a tendency with male writers, and some of it might just be falling back on what you know. We've talked about this on a couple of different items, being afraid to take the chance of being wrong,
1: Mm -hmm. so you
0: end up not taking the chance at all. Yes. Where you inadvertently or purposefully make these stories that are supposed to be about women just stories about men that have women in them. (laughs) Yeah, yes. And I think Terry Pratchett threads the needle between those really well because, shocker, women are not completely unknowable. Yes. We're just people. There's no big secret. You're just telling yourself that because you don't want to listen. I don't mean you, you individual listening to this podcast. You know what I mean.
1: Yes. We all know what you mean.
0: The royal you.
1: I think Terry Pratchett doesn't let gender get in the way of the idea that at the end of the day, people are people, and they want a lot of the same things. They want companionship. They do want security. They want to feel like that the world isn't completely bad. You know, we all face hard problems, and I think Discworld is about how do we approach those problems? How do we solve them? And... And a lot of the times, you don't solve them in in the way that you expect. Like, the populace doesn't rise up against the dragon and slay it. The the dragon falls in love with a tiny swamp dragon, and they fly off into the sunset together. There's no moral message to that. There's no, you have to rise up and defeat the dragon, because that's not what happens in the book.
0: And the people that do try that end up getting barbecued.
1: So what does it all mean? Who knows, I guess. And I guess that's sort of where we come down in life. I mean, imagine trying to be a political dissident in a country where, you know, that will get you killed, and there's no good answer to that.
0: No, there isn't.
1: I mean, people do it, and they're very brave, but it can be lethal.
0: hmm And I think the middle ground, I think this might probably be what Vimes hints at when he his response to the patrician is like, they're just people being people about how people will follow any dragon is in Vime's eye, because he's down there with all of them, and he can empathize with that, is you do have to understand, even if you disagree with people, and you disagree with how they've tried to obtain that kind of security, that's what they're working towards. And that in and of itself can be good or bad, but it is still the same motivation.
1: It goes back to the bad people on both sides, but maybe it's just regular people on both sides.
0: Yeah. I really like the patrician's use of the word creative in regards to sin, because most people aren't that way. No. Most people just have that humdrum badness that really is just complacency. Um, most people are not the big creative bad guys of the world that get, you know, they're, they get second billing and stories and things like that. That's not <laughs> who most people are. And Discworld at the end of the day, I think really is a not is a book series about most people. I was very delighted when I read Guards Guards, and the hero, the prince that they picked out, dies. <laughs> yes, and the fact that even the city the city watch managed to defeat the dragon through their various machinations that they weren't even really aware they were doing, as you do. I think one of the final things we should probably talk about if only for time, is where Discworld and the sort of literary laws that govern it fit in the pantheon of fantasy settings that we're sort of used to seeing. I read it very differently, even though I'm on a huge Lord of the Rings and Hobbit kick right now. It's very different from Middle Earth. It's different from Westeros. It's different from these weird and wonderful places that have sort of become very famous as the typical fantasy setting. Right, And while Discworld, as we sort of mentioned in the beginning, it is very satirical, it does pull from a lot of those things and how those things have become cliches and tropes. There's a quote in the book that I love that's like, cliches become cliches because they're the screwdrivers and hammers of communication. (laughs) Yeah. Which is true. There's nothing wrong with cliches and tropes, people. You're just mean. But (laughs) it's... (laughs) Ah, oh, I told you I'd be the memer of this group. But anyway, what I find so interesting about Discworld is that it manages to ground a lot of the very highfalutin fantasy without taking away from that fantasy. Because, like, there's a librarian who's an orangutan. Yes. <laughs> and there's wizards, like, real wizards who do magic, even though the magic they do isn't really as as, as it could be. Or as powerful as they want it to be. Like, that's a big thing with Rincewind, is he has one of the the eight original spells, like, in his head. And that's, if he is ever really powerful, like, that's where it comes from. Like, that's real magic, the way we would understand it. The witches get their power from a different place. But, like, I believe, I think this is from a, a Tiffany Aching novel, but it's that something doesn't stop being magic just because you know how it works. yeah. And I think that is a good thesis for how magic and fantasy is kind of treated in Discworld is here's how all this works. It's still magic, but it's something that you can relate to and something that is very real. Like Ah, more Pork, I always saw as a kind of every city. Yeah. My big thoughts on this book that I I did, I loved it. I burned through it once I finally got down and, and sat down to read it is it is a good example of what has made... Discworld, and I think Terry Pratchett, so sustainable is because it takes this formula, does for a little bit what you kind of expect it to do, and then it just takes a sharp left turn (laughs) and is like, we're going to go this way now. And that's so enjoyable and inspiring to me, I think, as a person who fancies themselves as someone who writes. That middle ground between respecting history and the sort of what you're pulling from and having a very healthy irreverence for it. Because I also think Terry's a good example. I love how I call him Terry like he's our friend. (laughs) That he has a great way of making things relatable and making stories that are usually about the heroes and villains, about people and how people are really the most important resource in the disc world. And with the city watch, as I imagine we will continue reading on and seeing, that holds the most truth in it, because it really, at the end of the day, is just these four guys. And I love the closing scene where they ask for, like, a dartboard and, like, raises and all this other stuff, and you just see, like, even after this huge thing has happened, this huge catastrophe, they somehow managed to help avoid they still have the same concerns the same worries they still just want to get through the day-to-day grind and that those people are what keeps the thin bridge over the ocean of bad steady is something that feels eerily like hope at the end of the day
1: yeah these books have been over the years i know we're gonna do more of them but i will just say that these books have been companions Mm -hmm. and, like you said, friends over the years. So I'm really excited for us to get into them more in depth because I think the City Watch books in particular, especially at this kind of turning point in American history, are so important and so relevant. And they force you to ask yourself – Am I going to be the person that stands aside and says nothing? Or am I going to do something about it? All right, that'll just about do us for today, robots. We hope you enjoyed hearing us talk about Guards, Guards, the first book in our remedial read-along series. Uh, Next week, I will be doing a solo show because Rachel is leaving us for a few weeks. So I will be selecting a comic to review in a shorter show, and I will announce that on Twitter and Tumblr when I have selected it. I haven't quite made it down to the comic store yet, but I'm going to pick out something weird and wonderful for y'all. After that, we will be reviewing Outlander, the first book in the Outlander series. We're going to be talking about romance novels as a genre and romance and adaptation, so pretty jazzed about that. And then the next remedial read-along we will announce at some point, but if you want to prepare in advance, it's going to be Minute Arms is the next book in this arc. So if you really like what we're doing, uh, please, (laughs) please rate and review. That means a lot to us. We actually haven't had any new rates or reviews since November, so we're like, are you out there?
0: Yeah, all of our friends have already done it, so now it's down to the rest of you friends we have not yet made yeah new
1: friends come come talk to us and you can talk to us at remedial studies on twitter you can also visit us at remedial studies you can also send us an email which we have not received a viewer viewer listener listener email especially
0: this is a, this is an audio only medium hannah
1: I forget. Uh, <laughs> we have not received a listener email yet, so if you'd like to be the first, you can email us at remedialstudiespodcast at com, And that will just about do us for today. So, good new Terry Pratchett.